Hi, this is Dinah Mellon, DJ at WOMR, and I have the opportunity to interview Anne Levine today. She's a fellow DJ at WOMR and a very important one these days. Um, Anne is hosting a program uh, called Ukraine 242. And it's all about news coming from the Ukraine, from Krena FM, which has now become the Radio Nationale Resistance. That's right. Thank you for having me, Dinah. It's great to be here. You're welcome. It's an honor. Well, it's yes. an honor to be with you. Thank you. I've uh, always heard about you. Uh, sometimes I'm not awake when your show is on. So uh, I miss a lot of your other radio show, the Anne Levine show, which is uh, what midnight is it or 1 a.m.? Yeah, I'm on at midnight. Most of our listeners uh, listen. We we do it as a podcast also. So Great. most of them download the podcast. But Ukraine 242 is on, on WOMR. It's on Fridays at 9 a.m. And then it goes global. Yes, it is. Where I'm on uh, the Pacifica Network, which WOMR is a part of. And we have about 165 affiliates. Most of them are in the United States, but some are in Canada. Some are in, oh, we've got one in Austria, in Paris, a couple in the UK. So, yes, uh, it it goes around the world. That's that's spectacular, especially for the cause that you're involved in, which is war in Ukraine. It's it's a horrible war, to say the least. I interview people. I interview one person a week. And most of them are Ukrainians in Ukraine, my interviewees. Uh, occasionally, the interview I did most recently is with an American photographer who went to Ukraine right after the escalation in the war broke out on February 24th. And he just felt compelled to go. He had never been to Europe. Um, and he got on a plane to Poland and took pictures of the refugees coming out of Ukraine. Then he went to Ukraine and he's been living in Kiev and taking photographs of the Russian atrocities of mass graves and some really, really tough things. So, so my point is that I speak to people who are on the ground and who are in the middle of it. And I have an interview coming up with a young guy who was a florist. And he got trapped in Cherniv and his brother said that he supported the Russian cause. And he 
went to Russia to fight Ukraine. So that's an extraordinary, heartbreaking, and unbelievable story that will be coming up. And I will be interviewing him. He's in Ukraine. He's turned his flower business into a volunteer rescue business, which is, it's so poetic, you know, florist to, you know, volunteer medic. Anyhow, I'm incredibly privileged to be able to speak to these people. They trust me with their stories. And it's a difficult show to do, but extremely important to get this stuff out, especially as, especially in the United States, as attention to this war is waning. Yeah. And you found out about um, Krena FM in a New Yorker magazine article back in March of 2022. And uh, you just felt like you had to get in touch with them. Yes. The New Yorker did a, a brief article on this network, a huge network, 27 cities in Ukraine um, called Kaina FM. And they were a music station, essentially, um, all over the country. And they had a mandate from the year 2014, which is really when this war started. What happened last February is that it escalated out of control. But in 2014, they said, okay, no Russian on our station, no German, no American, Ukrainian only. And it's the only Ukrainian only, Ukrainian language only station in Ukraine. And they were a music station, only Ukrainian music. And they had news breaks, you know, and commercials and occasionally interviews with sports figures. Um, relatively light fare, you know, FM radio, what we're used to here for the most part in a commercial station. A very popular one that was listened to in the whole country all over. Exactly. And the Russians bombed Kiev and they hit the broadcast ta- tower, which was the largest broadcast tower in Europe. And that's where radio, television, everything went out of. And so there was also a target on the backs of people in the media. So the general manager and the programming director of Crane FM went into hiding in the Carpathian Mountains. And all they had was one laptop and one microphone. And they stayed on the air 
and they became Radio National Resistance. And I read this article by Niarchos, and because they're radio people, I just, and something about the story and the way it was written just lit a fire inside me. And it wasn't easy, but I managed to contact them. I wanted an interview with them. And of course, that turned into this much larger thing. The Pacifica Network had heard about that interview, which was on the M. Levine show, and gave me my own show, Ukraine 242. So it's been an extraordinary journey that I've been on. Oh, yes. You were a bit torn about uh, reaching out to the Ukrainians because of ancestral history. Yeah, my grandfather was from Odessa and my grandmother was from Kiev. And they escaped pogroms to come to the United States before World War II, between World War I and World War II. And having heard all my life about how horrible the Ukrainians were to Jewish people, I, when I first heard that Ukraine was being attacked, it didn't, it didn't raise an alarm in me instantly. I have to say, I didn't have an immediate feeling of compassion and wanting to reach out. Um, however, fortunately, I realized very quickly that it's what they're doing is what the Russians are doing is genocide and that what's happening to the Ukrainian people is are, are kinds of atrocities that are unimaginable. And so almost overnight, after I interviewed Don Volkovetsky, the general manager of Crane FM, I became a full-on supporter of Ukraine. And I, I live on Ukraine time. I answer my phone 24 seven, they're seven hours ahead. So sometimes I have to get up at two o'clock in the morning to make a, a meeting in Kyiv, but that's how I've been living since last March. Mm -hmm. My head is definitely there, part of my head and part of my heart in Ukraine. There are atrocities that you mention. We don't hear about them in the regular news. Um, we know people are, cities are being bombed, homes are being annihilated, uh, people are being seen, you know, lying in the streets. But you say that genocide is taking place. How do we, how do we picture that? How, 
how do they, are they like lining people up and suiting them? Actually, yes. Um, one of the stories that I heard, and I've also seen photographs of these things and they're horrifying. They lined up in Bucha about 25 citizens. And these are just folks, parents, children, grandparents, you know, local folks. And they got a bunch of soldiers, a line of soldiers with rifles that weren't loaded. And they told them they were executing them and, you know, set a ready aim fire. And then they pulled the triggers and nothing happened. And of course, these people just the screaming, the collapse, the losing control of their bowels, these these horrible things. And then they loaded their guns and shot them. And you, you see pictures of these Russian soldiers laughing. There are children being raped. There are women being raped in front of their children after the children are raped. I, the, the level of the amount of rape as a weapon cases is innumerable. There are also pictures of torture chambers that I have seen. And these are makeshift torture chambers. They are secret police from Moscow. They set them up like in a basement. And I don't even, I hesitate to even describe what goes on there. I, I, I don't know, Dinah, I don't know how you feel about something so incredibly graphic. I, I guess, uh, you know, I've talked to different people about this particular thing. It's more than bombs are falling. Right. I had a feeling it was going to go in this direction. And it's really hard to believe in our world today that there's such sickness in these people in their heads. There's a lot of random, um, not as much as there was initially but in the beginning, when the Russians came into Mariupol and Bucha, they would just stand on a street. And anyone riding by on a bicycle or, say, walking to the grocery store, they just shoot and kill. Just picking people off. Their mandate is get rid of as many Ukrainians as you can. And of course, about 300,000, and that is a guess. That's a conservative guess. Mostly children have been kidnapped and taken far into Russia, and they are in filtration camps. 
and they are being taught to be Russian. And, and they're, being put, they're, they're being put up for adoption to Russians. Yes. Um, it's, it's a really, the, uh, the desire is if we can just get rid of these Ukrainians, then we can have this piece of land. Even though we've, we're turning it into town by town scorched earth. Yeah. So there's another thing I really want to mention, which is there is a lot of conversation that I hear in this country about these aid packages and we shouldn't be sending weapons and um, people who are pacifists and having talked to many, many Ukrainians who are civil rights leaders, who are left wing, who do not believe in war, they will say to me, if you are sitting in a room with your hands tied behind your back, watching your mother, your grandmother, and your child get raped, you want those soldiers to show up. You want those tanks. You want our army coming in. We've never been through a land war in this country. And we have to be really thoughtful about what these weapons mean to Ukraine. Right now, there's no other way to stop the torture, the loss of life, and oh, so on. Um, Anne, you're, you're a strong woman to be able to do this week by week. And, uh, and it doesn't seem like uh, things are gonna lighten up in the Ukraine any day soon. Fortunately, what I'm hearing is on the conservative side, Ukraine is looking at at least another year. Um, last February, if you had said to me or to practically anyone, this would still be going on now, it would have seemed unimaginable. But it is still going on. And all anyone can agree upon about what could bring this to an end is regime change in, in Russia. Russia? In Russia, I I keep hoping to see more articles about Putin's health declining. Yeah, <laughs> you know you don't want to wish bad things for anyone, but he truly is a monster. And he's never going to stop as long as he can keep doing this, keep making this happen. And he's just, uh, what do you call it? Uh, he, he's uh, gotten uh, more soldiers keep coming, being at, actually forced to go to war. Um, 
Yeah, it's a lot of them dessert, um, and they're all welcome in Ukraine. The Ukrainians treat defectors very well. Uh, but what they have is, it's been described to me by experts in combat as brute force. The Russians use brute force, massive bombing, um, just carpeting the place with bombs and mines, even dead bodies. So you have to be very careful when you go move a dead body out of the ground because they're booby trapped with mines and they have to wrap straps around them and drag them from a distance out of the ground. It, anyway, the, and the, the, the Western weapons are more precision. So it's, it's, it's the brute force versus dis precision and the brute force is needs to be met with some brute force. That's just my opinion. We see we talked about war crimes and orphanages. Oh, the orphanage. That's a good story there. About the woman who started it. Yeah, I uh one of my first interviews in I guess it was early April was with a woman um, named Nastya who was a model and an Instagram influencer and a nightclub DJ. Gorgeous. You know, her Instagram was bathing suit photos in exotic locations. And anyway, when the war broke out, she started collecting supplies from, from anywhere. Her family was caught in Cherniv. And so she was completely head in the war. You know, all those other trappings and things went away. And there were a lot of children that had been, whose parents had been shot and killed, who were wandering around alone, unaccompanied. And she started a makeshift orphanage for these children. And she had a few other women volunteering and cooking for them, getting some clothes for them, getting diapers. The, the squalor that these children are in is just outrageous. It's heartbreaking. She was also taking care of all these dogs that were abandoned because their owners were killed or had to flee. And the Ukrainian people are extraordinary and what they're doing to help each other is incredible. And um, I'm sorry to say that this woman had a breakdown ultimately. Um, and she had other people to take over, but you can't endure endlessly, you know, if you're a sensitive soul. Well, she's still still alive, though, right? 
Oh, yes. But she, it just all became too much. Uh, you know, there's a guy in Minnesota, Ukrainian orthopedic surgeon who helps amputees. And there are hundreds of thousands of amputees now in Ukraine. He helps get them prosthetics. And he was describing how, what that's like, you know, one minute you're walking down the street and the next minute you're lying on the ground and your leg is gone or your arm is gone. And the, I tried putting in my head just for a second, thinking, all right, so if I fell on the ground and my leg was gone, what would I do? You can't get up. You, so I guess what I want to get across is that the, the, when you look at the individuals and the toll on them and what the individuals are going through, that's really the heart of this story. That the little picture is really the only way you can see the big picture and understand the war that surrounds it. The, uh, the tanks are going to help. The tanks. Yeah, there's a lot of debate about the, the Leopard 2's um, Schultz. Chancellor Schultz of Germany has been, in my opinion, extremely unhelpful. And Germany, of all places, has plenty to look at in their history about how this stuff goes. Yeah. Uh, the Leopard tanks have capacity and ability to do things. And it's a horrible shame that it's taken a year to get them, but he originally committed to them and then said, no, we're not going to do that until Biden releases some of their tanks. So that's happening too. And I'm just hopeful that that will help and not just put a Band-Aid on it so, you know, Ukraine doesn't collapse. This needs to stop. I was surprised that in all those months where Russia was starting to line up its military around the border of Ukraine, that more wasn't done. Um, worldwide i mean everybody knew something was going to happen any day and it just took months and months and months so that the russian army could just get ready and then they and then they came in and uh i i just couldn't believe all that time went by oh there's more more soldiers here and more soldiers here 
And uh, I just like, is this a fairy tale or something? No. Everyone, everyone defaults to nuclear threat. But Japan recently released some statements. Japan, of course, having gone through Nagasaki and Hiroshima and Fukushima and a lot of nuclear disasters on that small island nation. And they, their point of view is you cannot be afraid of nuclear threats because that empowers Russia or North Korea or whoever it is making the threats to just keep doing whatever they want to do. And it is not a good way to go about it. You have to meet, you've got to push back literally on an invasion like this. And I agree. I think it is an, a shame. And by that, I mean shameful that the world has not done enough to help Ukraine. And <laughs> I mean, or Syria or Ethiopia, Ukraine is one of many places where there is war, there's hunger, there's torture. And yes, they, the world, the board is denial. I was trying to get a handle on that just yesterday. You know, why am I not more politically active or, you know, how do I get through my days? But I just don't watch the news all the time. Um, I'm a musician, but uh, I'm also very concerned. And, um, you know, I could, I would love to walk down the, the street carrying a, a flag, you know, or posters, you know, to get more people active in uh, climate control and stopping wars and hate and the division in our own country. So Yes, indeed. Um, it's really important to speak, to speak up. Even when, you know, you and I have the luxury of, for the most part, preaching to the choir, given where we live and what we do, but we have to raise our voices and we cannot be complacent because we're inviting that horrible scene I described to happen in our own homes, in our own living rooms. I mean, look what happens when we have a power outage here during a storm for a few hours or for a day. We lose our minds. Well, imagine dead of winter and your power's gone, your water's gone, your heat is gone, no generator. It's just... We have it really good in this country. And we need to kind of remember 
I think how lucky we are and try to spread that luck around. And also keep the, the facts um, and the truth right on top. Because uh, history is trying to be erased in certain areas of our country in the schools and libraries. And, um, and is that, that's very scary to me. And uh, like a college in, in Florida, not wanting to have a certain uh, African-American studies class of some kind of, it's, it's, uh, they're not going to have it because, uh, but yeah, I don't the, really... the amount of, of suppression in this country that's going on of voices, the burning and banning of books that scares me terribly. And then of course we have our own violence, terrible violence, you know, our shootings and our, and somehow, somehow as a country, we stand for that. We accept that and we need to get our act together and do something about it. We really do. It's um, just, it's poison. Our country has been poisoned by it and uh, the, I don't know, the majority of Americans uh, aren't doing enough to stop it. Um, we, don't, we don't value human life. We just don't. And I think that the news is part of the problem. I mean, the more of it we see, this recent thing in Memphis, where this video is being shown on loops, the more you watch that, the more jaded you get, in my opinion. So we're really used to, we're so used to hearing about these shootings. And if it's less than five people, it doesn't even make the papers. So yes, I've wandered far off the topic of Ukraine However, uh, I, I do think the bottom line is that our voices are incredibly important and they are powerful. Pacificanetwork.org is where you can, our listeners can um, go find out and listen to more of the podcasts that Anne Levine has created. Um, I um it's actually a radio show. Pacifica broadcasts my radio show. And it, it depends on the affiliate when it airs. So with WOMR, it's 9 a.m. Friday mornings. Um, other stations play it at, at other times. But you can go to Pacifica.org and see who's playing Who's broadcasting it when? At ukraine242.com. You can go anytime and I make the shows available there. 
if you want to hear them at a different time. And if you want to, you can subscribe to it as a podcast or listen to the show there. And I also have photographs of my interviewees and other information at ukraine242.com. And of course, Facebook. A lot of the people that I've interviewed have Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts. They have all kinds of social media. I'm thinking in particular of Oleksandra Matvichuk, whose organization, which is documenting war crimes, she's an attorney and leads a group of attorneys that are documenting the war crimes in a way that they can be brought to trial. And she and her organization won the Nobel Peace Prize. So this year? Yes. And there were three winners. They were all from Ukraine and she was one of them. Wow. So there are some very, I've, I've been fortunate to speak to some incredibly accomplished people and members of Zelensky's government. I've talked to a lot of politicians. I try to get to artists. Um, I've talked to people in the military in combat, doctors, medicine, a lot of scholars to get the history of Ukraine, which is really complex and confusing. And so I spoke to the head of Slavic studies at Harvard, the head of Slavic studies at Yale. Uh, these people are incredible. I just spoke to a woman who's Elizabeth Wishnick, who is an expert in the relationship between China and Ukraine. Now, that's something I didn't even know existed, quite frankly. Um, and, and Russia and Ukraine and China. And there's this weird triangle. And China has a lot of influence on all of this stuff. So I really have, I, I interviewed two cantors on Long Island who left Ukraine in 89, went to Israel, they became cantors. And now they're two cantors at the largest reform synagogue in the United States. Um, so all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds. Each of these stories is compelling and fascinating. And there's something for everyone. Yeah. 
a cantor is uh, a singer, isn't it? Yes. I'm sorry. I should <laughs> describe that being being Jewish and from a Jewish being from New York um, and Long Island. I assume everyone knows what a cantor is. Cantor is the person you've got a rabbi generally leading services and then there's a cantor who does the chanting and the singing the beautiful chanting that you would associate with jewish ceremonies jewish services and so they are singing rabbis essentially and just a little FYI, you need neither a rabbi or a cantor to lead a service. Anyone can lead a Jewish service. Um, but in a structure like a synagogue here on the Cape, in our synagogues, we've got three of them and we have um, Chabad. We have a cantor and a rabbi in each one. So I wanted to get a take on what it was like being a Jew in Ukraine, not just in World War II and World War I, but now. And it was rough. You know, the minute the Soviet Union collapsed, they got out and went to Israel. So there are different sides and stories and voices. And I try to give room to all of them. Right now, the Ukraine, even uh, when this war started a year ago, um, Putin was making comments about all the anti-Semitism going on in the Ukraine. And uh, uh, there is a problem with anti-Semitism in Ukraine. But um, what, what's the status right now? What's happening in that department in Ukraine? You know, this woman, Anastasia, that I mentioned earlier, one of the stories she told me is that Cherniv, and a lot of people probably maybe remember that city, but that was the first city that was under siege by the Russians. It was shut down and was wiped out of everything. And people were living in makeshift shelters in basements for months. You know, I mean, I won't get into the details of that. You can just imagine. And so Nastya's grandfather, the family dog, and both of her parents were trapped in one of these underground, not even underground, basement shelters. And they were rescued by people from the central synagogue of Kiev. And she said to me, we couldn't believe it that Jewish people would save us. We're not even Jewish. And so 
so much of it as all bias is, is rooted in ignorance. It really is. Um, I couldn't believe her shock that a Jew would come to the aid of someone not Jewish. So I think that this war, and I don't like using this term because it's almost, it is literal in one set way, has leveled the playing field. And there is so much more respect for human life, respect for others. Um, there's, everyone helps everyone else. So I would say right now, um, anti-Semitism is not an issue at all in Ukraine. That's good. It is, of course, in Russia. It's terrible. And for them to have ever called the Ukraine a place run by Nazis was the most outrageous fabrication. Just, just ridiculous and absurd. The president of Ukraine is a Jew. You know, he was elected in a landslide. So, you know, we need to remember some, some of those facts and not certainly not fall for any Russian propaganda. And there's certainly a lot of that. There sure is. I think they have a, what do they call it? They're the experts. They are. They really are. It's horrible. Um, I want to thank you for your interview today, Anne Levine. And this will be aired during our programming on March 8th for International Women's Day, but I think it should be aired more than that. Well, that's very kind of you to say, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak about it because and about Ukraine 242 because I never do. I do the interviews and I really appreciate having the opportunity to, you know, tell my story. Um, it's hard to just take it in, take it in, take it in, week in, week out. Uh, so I very much appreciate you acknowledging me and giving me a space. We should do it more often. I would be pleased. Anytime, Dinah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. And everybody stay tuned to WOMR Community Radio. And uh, you'll hear from Ann Levine weekly. As Bogdan Bolkovetsky would say, and this is true right now in Ukraine, radio can save your life. When you've got to get down into a bomb shelter, you can't carry your laptop. You might not have internet, 
You're certainly not taking a 50-inch plasma TV into a shelter, but your little transistor radio can literally save your life. Radio is very important. So, and I want all radio listeners and particularly the DJs to remember that. So I thank you, Dinah, very much. You're welcome.